Okay, good afternoon everybody. We just ticked over 12 o'clock. And welcome to the 2019 Canberra Day Oration. And a very special welcome to any distinguished guests, any MLAs, political candidates, or whatever. Good to see you here. Uh, my name's Nick Swain, and I'm the president of the Canberra and District Historical Society. And our society is very grateful for the new, for this oration, and also assisting with publicity. And uh, it certainly worked. There's a great crowd here today. And special thanks to Catherine Martin, who's the National Library's Events Coordinator. As a historical society, it's especially important that we acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we meet today. I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Our society very much appreciates their long and continuing contribution to the area's history and custodianship. So as many of you know, today is the 106th anniversary of the naming of Canberra on the 12th of March, 1913. This year, the Canberra Day public holiday was yesterday, but we always hold this oration on the actual anniversary today. The Society has sought to commemorate Canberra Day since its formation in 1953, and since 2002, we've invited prominent Canberra residents to reflect on aspects of Canberra's past, to comment on the present, and to contemplate the future. This is what the Canberra Day oration is about where we've come from, what that indicates, and where we might be going. So by way, now, by way of introduction, I'll tell you a very little about our 2019 Canberra Day Erector, Mari Coleman. Um, her, I've had a look at her CV, and it's so densely filled with experiences, achievements, in a variety of fields ranging from journalism to social policy, public service, and social activism that I'm just simply not game to summarise them, especially when shortly you will hear about some of Murray's experiences firsthand. The little I will say is this. Murray came from quite a humble country New South Wales background and progressed through her education to being actively involved in many aspects of life at Sydney University. And after university, she made many significant contributions in the complex area of social welfare policy and continues to do so. In recent years, she's received a swag of well-deserved awards, including being made an officer of the Order of Australia. The subject of Murray Coleman's oration is Canberra, significant changes in the balance of power. Um, there will be time for questions at the end, and there will be a short vote of thanks by Vice President Dr. Richard Reed before we leave at 1 p.m., and we do have to get out at 1 p.m. So I'll now hand you over to Murray Coleman, and we'll hear an interesting oration. <laughs> Thank you, Murray. Well, thank you very much, Mr. President, and uh, greetings to distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen. I was engaging in greetings to distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, and I too would like to recognize the traditional owners of the place on which we meet. Now, I find it alarming actually that I'm supposed to be delivering an oration. It has certain connotations which um, um, are not going to be consistent with what you're going to hear. Uh, it's uh, more going to be, uh, let me think, 
well, put it this way, when I wander sometimes through the excellent bookshop here or the bookshop up at Parliament House that I pick up the newest edition of somebody's uh, political memoirs, um, I tend to read snatches of it, particularly of the periods where I was around, and uh, say, ah, one more unreliable memory. Um, so that's what you're going to be subjected to today, uh, another unreliable memory. There will be no footnotes issued. Um, now, I'd also make to like to make the remark that, having said that, um, as I was sitting last Saturday reading the Canberra Times, which I endeavour to do partly as a patriotic gesture as a Canberran, um, I came across a review by Chris, the title of the book is The Seventies. And because I was being particularly pusillanimous about preparing this address, I was tempted to read that review out to you. Uh, but uh, in much of what is described by Chris Wallace, and notice that caveat, I haven't read the book yet, forms the backdrop to, much, to some of the things that I want to talk about today. Um, and I suppose it would be fair, well, sometimes I resist that. Well, anyway, it is not unreasonable to say that I have, from outside observation, lived now for many years a life of activism in public policy. Um, that's not usually the sort of statement that people who've been senior public servants make because to be an activist is anathema. Uh, to the senior public servant. Um, so perhaps I would say that for 25 years of the last 50, I've been an activist outside the public sector, and for about 25 years I've been sort of an activist covertly within the public sector. Might be useful to talk a little bit about how I came to be invited to work in Canberra in the first instance, because we do have a tendency, I think, to uh, look at what people have been doing from the time they, they were established in the Canberra scene, so to speak, rather than to wonder how they got here. Now, I'd been living near, but not in Melbourne, and working in Melbourne for some time after my return from the UK in 1955, I was initially writing broadcast scripts for the ABC, both radio and later for television. Then I did some public relations work. And then once my youngest child turned three um, and was at preschool, we had three-year-old preschool in those days in the part of Melbourne, out of, out of Melbourne where I lived, I looked for more regular work. Now, I wasn't able to join the Commonwealth Public Service, which somebody invited me to do, because of the marriage bar. People here will, many of the grey-haired people will remember the marriage bar. Um, and in the event, I got a job as a medical social worker at the Preston and Northcote Community Hospital. For those of you who are not old Melburnians, 
the Preston Northcote Community Hospital, uh, which, by the way, no longer exists, um, was situated on the edge of what had been the Heidelberg Housing Commission redevelopment. And again, for those of you with, with Melbourne memories, you, you may recall that the Heidelberg Housing Commission development came into being uh, as part of the Victorian government planning for the 1956 Olympic Games. And then immediately after it had been the Games Village, uh, a vast number of people were moved in there from temporary housing. Some, of, some people were still living in tent cities on some of the fringes of Melbourne suburbs uh, in the middle 50s, something we, we forget. Um, and many of the people who were moved into Heidelberg Housing Commission area were people who were quite disadvantaged and had, had long histories of housing instability. Um, so there I was working at a fairly pointy edge with people who had disadvantages but for whom access to a public hospital was crucial. Now, remember this is 1963-64, um, um, there is no such thing as a universal healthcare system. No such thing as a universal healthcare system. Uh, there was no provision at a significant level for people who, the person who'd come into hospital and had a stroke and was unable to be cared for at home. There was no general availability of long-time nursing care. Uh, there were the remnants of the big old institutions, some of which had dated from the gold rush, such as the Bendigo Home and Hospital for the Incurables. I don't think it's still called that. <laughs> so one of the things that happened to me was that I had thrust upon me immediately uh, having to deal with people who, who were usually suffering from a lot of physical, uh, a lot of crisis, financial crisis as well as their health crisis. Um, and to give you an example of the kind of thing I mean, um, I had been called one day when I'd got into work to deal with somebody who was in the maternity ward and this was a woman who was approximately my own age. She, had, uh, she was on what was then called a Class B widow's pension. Um, we had two classes of widow's pensioners in those days. This was a Commonwealth pension, of course. Class A were women who had been actually married, known formally as uh, de jure widows, and who had either been divorced or whose husband was deceased. Um, and there was also the Class B widow's pension, which was for people who had been in a relationship of a given period, uh, who were known as de facto widows. That is to say they hadn't had the blessing of the marriage ceremony. Um, this particular lady of my own age was in that unfortunate position of being a de facto widow. Um, and she had 
two children by the relationship which had entitled her to be a Class B widow. Um, and in respect of those, a beneficent government was paying her a parenting payment. These names of these payments kept on keep on changing over the years, so I won't attempt to be historically totally accurate. Uh, and of course, she was entitled to, uh, through the pension and medical scheme, to hospital care for herself and her two children. The issue was that she was in the maternity ward because she had had a brief relationship with a gentleman who had vanished on hearing of her pregnancy. Um, now, this meant that I had the pleasure of having to explain to this unfortunate woman um, that it was hospital policy that uh, she was covered during her stay in the hospital, uh, but because the infant of which she'd just been delivered was not a child of the relationship for which she qualified for the Class B widow's pension, uh, that child was not covered. And were the child to remain in the, uh, in the hospital for any reason, uh, she would be charged a daily fee for the child being there. It was also my sad duty to explain to her uh, that the Commonwealth would be very unlikely to give her any kind of parenting payments in respect of this new baby, as indeed it would not be possible for that child to be covered by the pensioner medical scheme entitlement that she and the other two children had. Which was pretty invidious, a bit of a shock to me looking, I think now looking back on it, this was something that began to really stir my interest in policies that we had towards women who had children outside matrimony, otherwise known as unmarried mothers, um, and what the hell we were doing about health insurance to assist people with the cost of medical and hospital care. So it became necessary for me because I have that kind of habit of mind to try to understand and get, get more into the depth of these things. Now, I was very fortunate that uh, I fell in with, with the Victorian Council of Social Service at that stage. Um, and through Melbourne is a place of connections, I also discovered that John Deeble and Dick Scotton were working on their doctorates at the University of Melbourne with Ronald Henderson and they were working on the issue of how one might develop better ways to manage uh, payments for hospital and medical services. So we began, um, not at the request of Dick and John, but, but alongside that, uh, probably what was the first of many campaigns that I became involved in, to try to promote better public understanding of why these things were a public policy issue. And such was the relative innocence of Melbourne in those days uh, that it was remarkably easy to place stories with the Melbourne Herald. Um, and uh, the media were always very happy to have interesting stories to talk about. 
so that when Dick and John did uh, announce their proposed model at an ANZUS conference in New Zealand, I think it was in about 71 or 72, somebody here may remember that year better than I do, uh, we had an actual proposal for a model of national health insurance which we could throw our energy behind. And that in itself became one of the campaigns which had brought me to the attention of the then Federal Labor Party, then in opposition. Another matter which had brought me into some kind of notice was we then began to, we had simultaneous, one seemed to be running campaigns at a vast rate. Uh, we ran a campaign on the need for some kind of nursing home payment by the Commonwealth, which was successful in the sense that the Commonwealth did introduce a nursing home payment. But during that period, um, I spoke with many organisations and entities, and it was not a politically partisan exercise. Indeed, I remember once I was addressing the National Conference of the Women's Section, or there was the State Conference of the Women's Section, the Liberal Party, was being chaired by Senator Dame Ivy Wedgwood, um, and the Federal Minister for Health then was the Dr Jim Forbes, um, not a medical doctor, uh, but as he was speaking, he was talking about the wonders of what the Commonwealth policy was, and Dame Ivy sent me a note down along the table, which when I opened it read, don't let him get away with that. <laughs> and I, I find it hard to imagine such a thing happening these days. But it, it was very interesting that there was a much more open situation about the discussion of some of these issues. But it's also worthwhile going back to the point I was meant to make about bringing up the subject of uh, this book by Michelle Arrow. We've, it's very easy to forget what an incredible foment uh, most Western societies, including Australia, was in, were in, in the 60s and early 70s. This, this was a time of, uh, in this country, of, of the uh, Wars, of, this, of, of public dissatisfaction with the war in Vietnam, uh, street marches organised by Dr Jim Cairns. I've never quite forgotten my sainted mother, who was a lifelong Liberal voter, telling me one day that, that she had gone out into the streets to support Dr Cairns, and I raised my eyebrows and she said, he is a Dr Mari. <laughs> but putting that to one side, we saw in that period the, the, the so-called swinging 60s, yes, but there was an immense growth of uh, countercultural organisations of um, people forming groups which were based around the proposition that they were entitled to be heard. I remember Winston McCackie coming back from uh, uh, a posting with her then-husband Patrick in the States and Winsome was seized with the idea of converting everybody to community-controlled childcare. Now, at that stage in Melbourne, there were a very limited number of public childcare centres, and uh, this is a true story. The, the occasional childcare centre 
uh, run by Melbourne City Council, actually had a chute that you could deliver a child down if you're in a hurry. Uh, to my personal recollection, the South Sydney Municipal Child Care Centre, which was run by an estimable woman who, who was a nurse, uh, would not permit a parent to go beyond the first corridor so the parents never penetrated into where children were because of the risk of infection. So the idea of community to control childcare was, was a, an idea whose time had come, to use a phrase of that period. Uh, so the, there was community childcare movement, uh, uh, a group of very solidly middle-class girls got together and formed what was going to be the breastfeeding society, but when they were told that Breastfeeding was a tad risque. Um, so they became the Nursing Mothers Federation of Australia. Um, a group of former psychiatric patients got together and, and formed a self-help group for people who had had psychiatric illness. I cannot begin to convey to you, if you don't remember that period, how shocking these things were to the establishment. Quite apart from Billy Mackey Snedden describing one of... Jim Cairns' marches in advance as going to be a group of bikies pack-raping democracy. I do recall that a lot of my friends who are extremely respectable ladies from Morven got out and marched because of that. <laughs> but turning to the single mother's side of things, um, we began to see the formation of groups of women representing single mothers. And I was at a um, conference uh, where the professional association was uh, about to debate the psychopathology of unmarried mothers um, when a particularly difficult social worker, uh, I say that with admiration, called Eric Benjamin, got to his feet and said, I'd like to introduce, and he produced a young woman, again of impeccable middle-class characteristics, uh, who was going to explain to you how she became an unmarried mother, uh, which she did to the great mortification of all of the social workers there. Uh, so we're talking about a period of, of listening to consumers, of thinking that things had to change in some way. Uh, and that's before we get to the enthusiasm with which... Gough, Whitlam and co. were advancing the idea of, of its time. Um, so it was that I was invited by uh, Mr Whitlam uh, in the event that he won office to come to Canberra as a commissioner of a combined health and welfare commission. Uh, the health commissioner would be Dr Sidney Sachs, I would be the welfare commissioner and there would be an integrated health and welfare administration in Canberra. Now, that didn't happen. Uh, long story, the caucus elected Dr Doug Everingham to the caucus, to, to the uh, uh, ministry, and health was split back off, and Sid became chair of the uh, Hospitals and Health Services Commission. I became chair of the Social Welfare Commission. And we began a period there of uh, much more openness at government level 
two inputs from consumers. Um, I can remember uh, Minister Hayden had a group of people put together to talk about um, benefits, unemployment benefits, I think it was in particular, and he actually insisted on having some people who'd actually been on unemployment benefits uh, participate in the discussions. And these sorts of changes, I think, were being felt across all the areas of social policy. Um, one of the other things which was occurring at that time, of course, was the uh, Ronald Henderson chaired uh, Royal Commission into Poverty in Australia. Um, the etiology of that in itself was interesting because it had come about because the churches and the others in the community had been agitating about the level of poverty in Australia. Um, and in some way, that had persuaded William Wentworth, then the Minister for Social Services, of the importance of looking at poverty in Australia. Indeed, one afternoon, I got, this was before I, not long before I came to Canberra, I'd had a phone call from uh, David Scott, who was head of the Brotherhood of St Lawrence, asking me if I would be available to meet at Ronald's office at the University of Melbourne. When I got there, it turned out that we were to participate in a conference call with, with William Wentworth, or Willie. Um, now, there were no speaker phones in those days, uh, so everything had to be repeated backwards and forwards. But essentially, there were four of us in that room, and we were being asked whether we would support, endorse a royal commission into poverty. Um, it was exciting and it was exhilarating to be involved with, that, with social change in that way. Um, and of course, when Labor did come into power, um, uh, the Royal Commission was significantly expanded uh, to cover other areas apart from uh, the specific area of income poverty that Ronald had been so concerned about and which some of you may recall flowed after, came from a, the original Melbourne poverty survey which Ronald had paid for out of his private means, which were quite able to do that. Um, we saw interesting things come out of that. The, um, uh, the Royal Commission was given funds to um, test out various other approaches. One of those was that my friend Connie Benn uh, was given the job at the Brotherhood of developing a totally new approach towards client welfare uh, services, changing from that old top-down, uh, I'm a professional, I'm going to help you, to coming back from the client, uh, to start a new family centre, which was modelled around what these groups of families, mostly from the Fitzroy area, were looking for. So it was a remarkable time in terms of changes. Now, I might have hinted to you that I found Canberra a little bit different uh, from the freewheeling social policy scene in Melbourne. Um, I was commuting, of course, which, which made life a little bit less easy. Um, and I was distinctly a rarity of being um, not only running one of the new entities that Whitlam was creating as alternative sources of policy advice, 
uh, but also being a relatively young woman and at that stage one of the very few women at that level in the Commonwealth Public Service. Uh, it was an exhilarating challenge that we had, but it was also very complex trying to deal with, with entrenched attitudes. Um, I might say by way of anecdote, I was at a dinner party on one occasion in old, in old Mugaway um, with some, hosted by some people I'd known in Melbourne. Um, and uh, I think there was a judge and his wife there and a couple of senior naval people and their wives. And one of the wives asked me very graciously whether I found Canberra stratified. And I'd said, yes, I did. And she said, we often dine with captains and their wives. <laughs> um, so at that stage, the judge's wife asked me very kindly to change the topic, whether I dined without my husband. So I don't know whether there are still conversations like that in Old Mugaway because I no longer move in such salubrious circles. Um, but it was a bit, bit of a change from client-controlled uh, family centres in, in Fitzroy, uh, is all I can say. Uh, and the interesting entire thing of, of challenging uh, medical social workers who wanted to talk about the psychopathology of unmarried mothers. Now, one of the first tasks that I remember setting in on with, uh, in Canberra was um, looking at uh, the issue of a sole parent's, what was going to be an unmarried mother's, pension, un an unmarried mother's benefit, uh, which obviously the Social Welfare Commission was very anxious to endorse. Um, and I've not yet forgotten that one of the arguments which was led against it by a senior officer of the department was that, um, I'm not saying this is logical, uh, that it would be improper to introduce a payment at that level because it could encourage women in Tasmania to kill their husbands in order to get it <laughs> because the level of wages for agricultural labourers in Tasmania at that time was lower than the proposed payment. That's very hard to argue. We did succeed in getting the first Commonwealth payment for never married women. And as David, who's here, will know, that's gone through many iterations. Um, but, and eventually it uh, became, a, it was complemented by a payment for sole male parents, which had not been there. At a later stage, uh, it was decided to roll all the payments for women, well, for sole parents with dependent children, whether they be male or female, into the one payment for to be known as sole parents. And I can remember a colleague who'd been working on that long after I'd stopped working in that area of the department saying to me that it, one thought had been that that might reduce the stigma associated uh, with the payment being for never married women. Now, I was thinking about that again this week uh, as I was reading some of the submissions to the Senate inquiry uh, into that payment known as Parents Next, 
where we're reading of sole, nearly always single, single women, sole women. They may have been married, they may have been divorced, they may have been never married, um, being required now to uh, attend all sorts of courses and having their payments cut off if they don't agree. And it's a program which has been farmed out, contracted out to private providers, and there is no longer a provision for the people who are notionally being helped to appeal to Commonwealth administrative law against those decisions. It's an astonishing change from that beginning of, no, it's not psychopathology, it's what happens to people, through to <coughs> let's try to have a universal payment which is helpful for people, through to how can we punish these deplorable people. It's a huge arc of change. And it worries me a great deal. It worries me that we now know, remarkable statistics somebody produced the other day, in an attempt to make the situation more real, they said that there were now so many children living in poverty that we could fill the MCG seven and a half times. Now, that's a very curious metric. But the fact remains, we have more children living in poverty in Australia in 2019 than we had when Ronald conducted his Royal Commission into poverty in the early 70s. And they're living in poverty because of conscious decisions of public policy about how to make supports more difficult to, to treat people who need support in a generous society as leaners, not lifted, not lifters, to use a phrase which is still in my memory from the 2013 budget. Um, very interesting change in attitudes. Uh, we are being disgraced as a nation this week because we have the counsel for the single mother and her child and a parent complaining at the United Nations that the parents' rights, human rights, have been adversely impacted by this particular policy. Um, so what I'm seeing is, is this vast change in attitude, as I said, over a period of time, which seems to me to be less easy to shift through civil society than we found it in the late 60s and early 70s, even though at that time achieving change seemed very challenging indeed. But this does leave me feeling strongly still that there is an important role for civil society, for activists, in working to try to change public policy, trying to make sure that we move from a punitive frame of mind to one which recognises that in a decent society, people ought to be able to live with some degree of comfort uh, and without being discriminated against. Um, so I guess what I'm saying is uh, demonstrating that old activists 
may get elderly, but we keep on being active. Thank you. Thank you so much, Marie. That was fantastic. Um, I'm not going to steal Richard Reed's thunder. Um, we've got time for some questions, and there should be a couple of microphones around. Who's got the microphones? There's one at the back? Yeah, okay. Microphones are just coming. Okay, there's a question right at the far back. Marilyn. Thank you very much, Mari. Um, I'm one of those people who, well, uh, we're not supposed to be able to remember the 60s, remember, because we were there. <laughs> no, my question is actually, or a perception that I have perhaps, that over more recent decades, the I'm okay, me, me, me sort of factor, um, rather than a sense of maybe the broader community or civil society, is maybe um, playing into politicians and other decision makers that you've just described um, of punishing people um, because we, we're okay or something like that. I see it a little bit of an Americanization because we do have our myth of fair go and that seems to have just fallen out somewhere along the way. So I just wondered whether that sort of I'm okay, um, they've failed the whatever ideal of where we should be is part of uh, why people are getting away with the sorts of decisions you described at the very end. In short, to a degree, yes, but I think there are other things. We, since the 80s, we've seen not only in this country but... but uh, certainly in the UK and in others, um, a tremendous uh, uh, move away from belief in the role of government as an instrument uh, of improving social equity. Um, so that there has been a push to, to both limit the scope of government, uh, to increasingly use private contracted providers for provisions of service uh, and the reduction of any kind of uh, client um, capacity to have a, a strong active role. Uh, so those changes have, have been very important and they've probably reflected that, that move to uh, if you have a go, we'll give you a go and if you don't have a go, we'll have a go at you, kind of concept, um, which permeates the situation today. Um, it's interesting that New Zealand, whom we sometimes follow after and we sometimes lead, went through a lot of that and is now conducting uh, a, a range of changes and reviews of their public policies um, because they found that they had a shockingly high rate of child poverty, for example. So New Zealand seems to be coming through into another side of things. Um, whether we will, I don't know, but I, I think you're right that, that the very much more atomised society that we've seen develop does play a part in underpinning public acceptance of those attitudes towards the role of government. 
Hi. I, I want to raise the issue of transitioning to mothering. Women, when they have a child, at personal sacrifice... I can't hear you properly, I'm sorry. Sorry, I want to raise about the issue of mothering and, women and feminism and women. When women have a child, they do an extremely good public service in creating future citizens who will pay tax. But that role of doing that is not valued and we know that transitioning to mother is the stopping point in gender equity. And it has many flow-on effects for future generations and for children around poverty. How do we address that issue in our society? How do we value a role that is truly feminine and create opportunities for that woman to be productive outside of that role? It's, I'm not the person who can tell you how we can do it. Um, but it, it, it is an interesting issue. We've seen a great change in, let me go back, say, to the Howard years, when Mr Howard was very antipathetic to the idea of giving working mothers paid maternity leave, and instead he ran a campaign which was around white picket fence values. We've moved now to a situation where we greatly, the economy, we talk economics the whole time, the economy is dependent on female labour. But what we don't really value is the particular role of the woman with a child. Instead, we insist that she must be in the workforce. Now, there will be many feminists who will want to shoot me for having implied that there might be a role in bringing up children. Um, but uh, there is. And, and I, I'm deeply sceptical about policies that say that people can't be at home with, with, with school-aged children over, over the age of six years. It, it's, it's a complete rejection uh, of, of a very important task in, in society. Um, and I think we need to be much more sensitive to the fact that women do remain the primary child-rearing people, whether we like it or not. We must attempt to produce more policies which share things evenly between both parents. But we, at the same time, I think, have to look very much more at policies which value and, and assist women as, as mothers, as you say. Mari, I, th I think a lot of us here would really like to know a bit more about your early experiences heading up that commission and in your unique role as a woman in that role. Uh -huh. Just give us a few more little tidbits. <laughs> well, it was... I've told people before that it, it started with... I was going to be the chair of... Uh, a commission, and the first person who picked me up from the airport when I landed in Canberra on that day in March 73 told me that, that there'd been much jocularity around the office because chair lady sounded so close to char lady. <laughs> the, the fact that I was a woman in that position was definitely a novelty. But it did also mean that there, I, I encountered a degree of sexism, straight out, you know, sexism in the office, to an extent that I had not had in Melbourne. Um, 
And I don't know how much of that was because I was both a woman and from outside the Commonwealth Public Service, um, or just what it was all about. Um, there was constant sniping about the fact that we had pretty much of a gendered balance in the staff of the Social Welfare Commission. Uh, and constant little stories popping up that I only ever employed women, which was not strictly true. I mean, it, you could ask Andrew Podger, for goodness sake, if I employed him. Um, there were many men who worked for the commission. Um, but there was that nudge the whole time about being the, the, the first woman at that level in the public sector. Um, and indeed, it wasn't until uh, Helen Williams was the public service commissioner, I think, that uh, the fact that I'd chaired a statutory authority, it was the first woman to chair a statutory authority, was recognised in the commission, um, as opposed to those one or two women who had become, by that time, departmental secretaries. It, it was a very curious situation, which I don't look back on with a great deal of enthusiasm, quite frankly. Um, and it was certainly difficult, I think, for aligned social services, was not the only one, um, to have these policy commissions thrust upon them. Um, I think both education and health were more disposed at that time to see their policy commissions as means of expanding their influence, whereas socials had a tendency to see us more as something not quite legitimate, and that was very, very difficult to work with. Um, but having said that, it, it was an extraordinarily challenging and interesting time. Um, there were masses of competing sources of advice emerging at that time. One would have to say, among other things, about Mr Whitlam, that he did love competing advice. Um, and so there were the long-term policy commissions going on there. There were short-term inquiries going on. There were there was the uh, uh, priorities review staff in his own department. Um, so trying to, to um, put a policy proposal forward was very much being part of, of a competitive scene. Um, and I remember when we were asked by Mr Whitlam to um, produce an alternative preschool and childcare policy um, that... Uh, put us into an extremely interesting position because he had simply repudiated the document which had been produced by the preschools committee. Um, and uh, I found that somebody whom I had been pressed to put onto my group who were working on early childhood policy uh, was in turn reporting through a back door to uh, somebody else in PM&C. Uh, it, it was very strange, very strange indeed. Um, but, you know, it also was a time of great innovation in policy, and, and, uh, but at the same time, one would have to say it was a tad disorderly.
Yes, yes, it's on. Mari, I first met you at the beginning of the Fraser years when you were still an agency head. How did they compare and contrast with the Whitlam years that you've just described to us? Ah, yes. <laughs> um, well, I don't think Mr Fraser was into competitive advice sources. I, I think he was... But at the same time, um, there was much sturm and drang around what was Mr Fraser was doing. At the same stage, um, he was committed to the idea that there should be an expansion of childcare to the great shock of many of his ministers. Uh, that was the job into which I was translated after the Social Welfare Commission. And um, I very much remember being in the parliament for a meeting of the cabinet uh, not long after the parliament had resumed. And Babette Francis of Melbourne, who, with whom I used to have dinner parties, um, but who had gone on to form women who want to be women, um, produced a cake which she was parading around Parliament and into the Cabinet room, uh, which was uh, iced as to the men in the Cabinet from the women at home. <laughs> Went down like a lead balloon with Margaret <laughs> Guilfoyle. Um, but it was extremely interesting that 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 particular cabinet discussion, which was around what was going to happen with, with early childhood, had um, discussion going back and forth, and um, a minister from Melbourne, I can't, I've forgotten his name now, he used to be known as the little leg spinner from Karangamite. Somebody else might remember his name. Um, prompted by Margaret Guilfoyle, said, oh, well, I, I really think, Prime Minister, we should promote childcare because, after all, it was our party which brought in the, 19, the 72 Child Care Act. So everybody agreed then that it was good liberal policy to have childcare. Um, it, it was a, a very interesting time to get through, and uh, um, I think, in retrospect, um, perhaps many people would hope that there were elements in the Liberal Party now who are as liberal as Mr Fraser was. Uh, well, ladies and gentlemen, before I begin, can I get just congratulate uh, our orator on the most remarkable memory uh, and the ability to talk to us, you know, not to write something out, but to talk to us from notes about the most complicated uh, and, you know, difficult uh, aspects of Australian society. I've been asked to be brief, um, but unfortunately I, I come from a country where brevity in public speaking is, is regarded as uh, the mark of an illiterate fool. So um, I will be uh, a little more expansive in what I have to say. Um, I think I stand here really at, at all, you know, as someone who, if you like, is, is semi-literate, uh, because of a woman. Uh, and that woman would actually be my, my grandmother who back in the dim, dark, distant days of the 1880s actually matriculated uh, to the National University of Ireland in physics, mathematics, and French. 
And it was she, I am convinced, uh, who convinced my father that education was an important thing for his son and for his daughter, uh, and that we should be treated absolutely equally uh, when it came to that. I now have uh, six grandchildren, four of whom are granddaughters. Uh, and I certainly, after listening to, to Murray this, this morning, think that their future is more assured because of the, the battles that were fought by people like Murray back uh, in, in the 1970s uh, and the 1980s. Battles that have no, by no means been completely won, uh, and I'm, I'm fully, aware, fully aware of that. Uh, but just to expand a little on a, something that Nick mentioned, he, he very quickly uh, adumbrated Murray's early life. And I believe this morning, correct me if I'm wrong here, Murray, that on the ABC you said that, that uh, something about Dubbo. And I believe that you actually come from Dubbo. Is that correct? Yes, you were born in Dubbo. And, and you mentioned something that you didn't get to in your talk, and that is the, the effect at the moment of, of climate change. Uh, and what's going on in, in New South Wales. And you talked about the fact that the 40,000 residents of Dubbo are rapidly running out of, of, of water. So here is a whole thing, a whole area that you, you weren't able to sort of say too much uh, to, us, to us about. But I'd just like to mention, to mention that. I'm a strong believer in local history, by the way. That's why I had to throw Dubbo uh, in, into the mix. I thought the idea that at some stage senior public servants were covert activists uh, is, is, is a remarkable thing. And I think it would be a, a Brilliant idea if some of our senior public servants at the moment could get back to something of that rather than regard themselves as interchangeable with the boardrooms uh, of Business Australia. And that would be a fantastic thing if we could return to that. But I think the other things I'll take, take away from what Murray's been saying are a couple of little marvellous images. So if I could just share those with you. Uh, and these images take us back to the idea that we really need to get away from the old, the common sense economic ideology of the last 30 years. So let me just, to a position of greater social justice. So these images that, that, I, will, that I will take take away from this are firstly, Murray in that hospital, trying to explain to that woman that she would not necessarily qualify uh, for benefits for her child who had just been born. What a horrific you know, way of, of, of conjuring up just where we have, where we have come from, or perhaps you know, we haven't advanced beyond. The second one is the image of the childcare chute. Uh, uh, I'm thankful that we are going to lunch with Murray. I really must get a little bit more you know, of an idea of what that chute looked like and, and how it operated, you know, and who was at the top end of it and who was at the bottom end of it, who received it. And the third image that I, I'm going to, I'm going to take, take away from uh, this morning, and I, and I think, I, I think I'm right in that you, you ascribe this to Billy Snedden, uh, was, the, was the idea that, that you know, social demonstrations and marches in the streets are bikies pack-raping democracy. Um, now, I mean, have we come, have we advanced at all, have our politicians advanced at all when we have a, a prominent member of parliament thinking that the people of Australia actually elect him to the position of being Deputy Prime Minister. Uh, I suspect that we haven't come uh, too, too far when we're still at that position. Um, but certainly, I, I took a lot of hope away from what the thing, what Murray has been talking about and listening to her on, on the ABC this morning, that maybe the pendulum is swinging back a bit uh, towards the idea of, of a just uh, society. I certainly hope th so. Um, and I, I certainly was really interested in hearing about those, those interesting days of the 1970s and 80s when I first came to Australia in 1972 and what was going on. And uh, certainly some of my memories go, go to that. But I'd like to think that if we are, if the pendulum is indeed swinging, 
that we may get back to a society where there is a better future for all, including pensioners, the unemployed, unmarried mothers, the poor, and dare I say it, Mari, refugees. So thank you very much indeed for a very illuminating talk. Thank you, Richard. Uh, you add uh, yet another dimension to the whole story, which is wonderful. Um, I'd just very briefly like to uh, present our speaker with a small gift. Thank you very much. Mark.